Greetings, and welcome to Office Hours Air. My name is Noah Sviven, I'm your host. Office Hours Air is a weekly interview program brought to you by the Stanford Daily in partnership with KZSU Stanford Radio 90.1 FM. Office Hours Air exists to bring thinkers, writers, and do-gooders from around the campus in conversation about their life and work. My hope for the program is that it will help listeners on their own journeys of discernment, whether they are 25, 52, or 103, or undergraduates like me trying to decide where to go and what to do next. Like many guests on the show, today's guest is no stranger to my questions. Carolyn Winterer is my advisor for my honors thesis, and she has graciously fielded many questions of mine over these last few months. But more importantly, she is the William Robertson Co-Professor of History and American Studies here at Stanford, and since 2020, Professor Winterer has served as the chair of the History Department. Professor Winterer has described herself as a European intellectual historian working in the American theater. Professor Winter demonstrates a deep personal sense for the intrinsic worth of the past and an attunement to the ways in which the present is alike the past as well as the ways in which the present is different from the past. Besides her beautiful writing, Professor Winter is a gifted lecturer and a dedicated teacher. And from January 2024 onward in Green Library, a special exhibition will be on display that Professor Winterer put together with Professor Jessica Riskin, entitled Apes and Us, A Century of Representations of Our Favorite Relatives, featuring paintings by the Prague-born painter Gabriel von Max of monkeys doing all sorts of very human things, playing the piano, putting together a bouquet, gazing at a painting, staring down a skeleton. If you are on campus or otherwise get the chance to see the exhibition in green, I encourage you to check it out. So with all this in mind, it's a special personal treat to have Carolyn Winter on the show. Professor Winter, welcome to the program. Thank you, Noah. It's a pleasure to be here. You just finished writing a book on the American reception of deep time. And from what you've told me in previous conversations, so much of that book and your interest in deep time comes from your long-lasting love of dinosaurs. When did you fall in love with dinosaurs and how did that love lead to this book? I fell in love with dinosaurs when I was very, very young. I remember being around three or four and lying down under the dining room table as one does when one is a child on my stomach looking at enormous picture books on rainy afternoons. And a lot of the enormous picture books we had were of dinosaurs and dinosaur paintings and paintings of early human beings. And to me, it was a kind of dream world where I would lose myself in those landscapes of long ago. And I found it all very enchanting. And I think I wondered from then until now, uh, why did I think this way? And moreover, why were there so many other people who thought that way and felt that way? So I thought, at some point, I need to write a book about this that will, among other things, include a lot of beautiful paintings of dinosaurs. So I have, I have done that. <laughs> and, and can you talk about what deep time is? Deep time is a concept that was invented over the course of the 19th century, so about 150, 200 years ago, that essentially posits that instead of the Earth being around 6,000 years old, which is what a literal reading of the Bible will suggest, and instead saying that the Earth is quite a bit older than that, perhaps 1 million, perhaps 2 billion, perhaps 4.5 billion years old, that changing of the mind in the middle of the 19th century 
is the subject of the book. I'm fascinated by how and why people change their minds about the concepts that are most fundamental to their reality. And deciding that the earth is really, really old and not really, really young and life upon it also very old, that's a huge shift in perspective. And tracing how and why that happened in North America was especially exciting because that was the continent that was believed to have risen last from the biblical floodwaters um, and therefore always considered the newest of continents. Not always considered, but since about 400 years ago when people started to worry about such things, they decided North America was very, very new indeed. Uh, and then suddenly... In this 100-year period between 1800 and 1900, they totally changed their minds about this and decided that North America was, in fact, the oldest of continents. And I'm curious what it's like to have, I don't know, a historically sophisticated relationship to science in which you have observed the ways in which science has shifted or the way in which people have, have used science has shifted. I mean, how, how do you then make sense of or receive scientific claims made in the present? knowing that they're also part of this historical journey. Yeah, well, it makes me, uh, I think, simultaneously appreciative of scientific claims made in the present, often knowing how much data they rest on and the sophistication of the scientists who propose them, but also always questioning, as as one should, uh, as a citizen, as a, as a human being. I also know that science became, at least in my view, much, much, much more difficult for the generally educated layperson to gain access to over the course of the 20th century. Uh, there are some people who study the history of science, and they essentially have to have a PhD in that particular scientific discipline in order to be able to do the history of science. I work in the period before 1900, and so I was able over the course of this book to really go down the same paths as my paleontologists and geologists and, and to have the same total understanding of their discipline that, that they did. Or I like to think that, that I was able to do that. So uh, I would say that I have extraordinary respect for people who study 20th century and 21st century history of science because, I mean, I have respect for the people who did it before, but the people who, who are doing modern history of science really have to have a very capacious uh, sense of, of what they're up to. But it's such a fascinating process by which historians are choosing you. Know, I'm going to specialize on this thing and make it my you know calling card. So how did you land on America and how did you land on before 1900? Yeah, well, I... As you can tell from what we've already touched on in the first five minutes or 10 minutes, uh, I, I like dinosaurs, so I've always liked things that are very old. Same goes for classical antiquity. Same thing goes for the Middle Ages. I, I think, you know, I was a medieval history major in, in college uh, at Pomona College. Uh, shout out to their wonderful historians there. And I, I think if I hadn't had to learn so many difficult languages in order to become a medievalist in a PhD program, I would have stuck with medieval history. Uh, but I didn't want to spend the time to do that. I'll fess up to laziness uh, there. And I also uh, experienced the difficulties of doing archival research in a distant setting. 
as an undergraduate, I wrote a senior thesis in Belgian archives. And, you know, it's really hard to do lots of archival research far away. It's logistically complicated, etc. So I sort of hit on trying to be a classicist or medieval and early modernist, but in the United States, because it solved a series of logistical problems for me while also taking me into a domain of American history that in fact is relatively understudied. So I kind of had the field, if not to myself, then uh, I had it in a much more crowded way than can be the case in some other uh, subfields of American history. And I've been happily wallowing around there ever since as as the descriptions of my book show. You know, I write about classicism, et cetera. So that's sort of how I ended up here uh, in my own kind of self-created domain. So we, we've talked about your your long-lasting love of dinosaurs, but I'm I'm curious if there were other early signs that Carolyn the little girl would become Professor Winter or the historian. Well, uh, yeah, I think in my case, I just really liked reading, as so many academics did. Uh, but I also very much liked the material world around me. Uh, I was fortunate enough to... Uh, get taken to a lot of uh, European sites uh, as a as a young child, and in part because my my mother is European, so we spend a lot of time in Europe. But I remember being captivated by cathedrals and especially really really old castles. Anything moldering and falling down. This this was my brief, uh, and uh, graveyards, all of these things, and. I, I like the smell. I like the touch. I like the whole feel. You know, a Victorian museum is is a sensory delight. Uh, the smell of those old mahogany cabinets and the the dust filtering uh, through windows, and I think that has very much shaped my teaching. Not only my research, but my teaching. Uh, as you know, Noah, I'm always busy taking my students to various archives on campus and showing PowerPoint PowerPoint presentations that that bring forth the materiality of the past, because I do think that we miss a lot of the totality of the human experience when we don't convey to our students that the past was not just something that was read; it was something that was fully lived. And that there are, in fact, some dimensions of the human experience that we cannot recover without at least making an effort to recover the three-dimensional aspects of of a world that people actively moved through and engaged with. So that's part of the reason for the the new ape exhibit uh, in the in the library is to recreate a sense for for what it is like to live among our primate friends and relatives and to invite students and others into that world and the course that goes along with it. History forty one something Q I think forty one Q yes thank you. <laughs> So, I mean, your your lectures have these wonderful visuals. And, um, of course, in my conversations with, I don't know, elder, retired professors, they have various things to say about PowerPoints. But PowerPoints are such a powerful tool with such wonderful you know, visual contributions. And, I, I mean, how, how do you go about in, you know, selecting these these paintings that you put in there or in the, the other images? I mean, are there, do, you, do you have to actively search out for them or do they just sort of come to you while you're in the process of putting the lecture together? 
All of those things, Noah, the the process of putting together one of these lectures is is its own adventure for me. And I get very fully engaged in that process and what what story am I telling? What what narrative do I want to bring forth? And I like to think that the the images, some of which are trying to represent three-dimensional uh, objects and architectural uh, pieces, uh, they are speaking to me and telling the story. Uh, and this is one thing I always tell my students, you know, our, we as historians don't use visuals, as they're called in our, in our books, uh, we shouldn't use them to illustrate the argument that we are making in prose. The visuals should be part of the argument. They should help to shape the argument. And I like to think that my lectures do that, that in some senses, first, the object or group of objects is speaking to me. And they're telling me, Carolyn, obviously you want to say something about this thing, uh, you know, women's pockets in the 18th century. <laughs> Let's talk about women's pockets in the 18th century and and where they are on women's clothing and what that tells us about how women could move through space in the 18th century, about what objects they needed to keep close to their bodies uh, and which ones they could keep further away and, and that there's some larger and significant story that needs to be said about that. Um, so, so I think that I myself am deeply moved by the visual world around me. And, and, and I like to, as you know, from <laughs> lecture students, I'm always telling uh, students that, that I'm not, um, I'm not trying to make them think something ever, or I hope, I hope I'm not, I am giving them the tools with which they can come to their own decisions about how they view the world. Can we talk more about those tools? What is it that constitutes history as a discipline? And what do historians do that you know, other humanists and social scientists don't do as much or can't do? Yeah, uh, that's a very good question. Some people would say that one of the things that our species is known for is fetishizing the archive. So historians like to think that they they base their analysis on a real world outside of their own minds and uh, that that real world is constituted usually by texts that we read. We call them primary sources. And then what we write about them, our interpretation is called secondary sources. And those primary sources can also include material objects, architecture, spinning wheels, etc. And that the one of the primary uh, requirements that historians have of one another is that those arguments be testable against evidence that other historians can find. So you could legitimately, we could both, you and I, Noah, write about uh, the same cache of primary sources, and we could legitimately come to different conclusions about it. But a third party should be able to look at those primary sources and agree that both of us have valid interpretations that we're not saying, oh, yes, these were brought by Martians and et cetera. <laughs> those would not be valid in the discipline of history. Uh, so I would say that that has some similarity to, but also a distinction from other uh, disciplines within the humanities. 
So what I like to do for students in the discipline of history is to show them that we can ask historical questions about primary sources and to begin to think about how we might ask questions that are historical. Where, where did this thing come from? What was the stated justification for its coming into existence? Uh, how did those interpretations change over time? We like to call this historical thinking. Uh, and it's, it's just one of a series of approaches that you can bring to any object of analysis. But I think it, it is not something that necessarily comes naturally to people. I think what comes more naturally and what we often hear about in the general public or, you know, if you're an American historian like me, you're often called upon to, to talk to the general public about, I don't know, the Declaration of Independence, et cetera. And there is a desire often to judge those texts or documents by our own modern standards of either what we agree with today, uh, or what we think is true uh, today, etc. And I often tell people that those are fine things to say as citizens, that we should judge the past according to our modern sensibilities about what is right and wrong. But as historians, we need to do something different. We need to try to understand as our first and primary move, just as we would want people in the future to come to us with an open mind and an open heart and to look at the ephemera that we might have been lucky enough to leave behind. Most of us leave nothing behind. And to 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 hope that those people would simply try to understand us. For example, say in 500 years from now, someone might come and ask, how were Noah and Carolyn so unthinking as to have used all that power during this one-hour interview? <laughs> they had the lights on, the microphone was going so, so wasteful when we know that 20 years from now they ran out of energy in the world, whatever. We would hope that they would then say, okay, that, but also something else. They were trying to do something else. They were trying to do something more than that. And so I try to give my students the tools to do what I think is a generous move is to try to understand first. And so much of that is what, I mean, you described it as, is recognizing the realness of the past and thinking of it as being just as real as the present that we know to be real because we're here. Or we think we're here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you didn't use the O word, um, objectivity, which so many people talk about and, and, and care about. Um, and right, I mean, I'm I'm lucky enough to be a history major, but um, and something I've been struggling with is making sense of the role of my own ethical commitments and convictions when I'm trying to come up with some historical argument, uh, right? And you don't want to step on the toes and taboos of the of the of the historical profession, but I mean, so where does that word objectivity come into it, and and what's the place of your own conscience? Um, in, in the work. Yeah. Uh, so objectivity usually enters into our 
arena of worries when we become graduate students. So hooray for you for already being worried about it. Uh, we usually teach it through a, a, a book uh, about the question of objectivity in the formation of the American historical uh, profession. It's a book called That Noble Dream uh, by a guy named Peter Novick, and all the graduate students out there will be nodding their heads that they have had to rake through this this book. And essentially, you know, this is the elusive quarry uh, of the historical profession. And we're all disabused of the notion at the end of the day that we can ever have any view from nowhere. We can we can never be objective. And so we have to try to get after different things, different aspects of the human experience. So I think if you talk to practicing academic historians, they very few of them, I would say, would um, fess up <laughs> to, to seeking objectivity as one of the things that they are looking at. They're often looking for some other dimension of uh, the sources that are given to them in the past. Uh, perhaps they are trying to retrieve historical silences, uh, perhaps things that were unstated or things that could not be stated, for example. Uh, that's really hard to get at. But objectivity... Um, yeah, I think we all we all worry about it in the cockles of our hearts uh, because we are we're aware that we feel objective when we're reading our sources. You know, we feel like we're reading them correctly, um, and and sometimes we're quite offended when other people don't read them correctly in the way that we do. But I think that we, among my colleagues, would would agree that that is probably not something that we need to spend a lot of our time worrying about because we've kind of given up on it in mm. some ways. So, I mean, you, you, you touched on the long journey it took to go to the Belgian archives. I mean, can you, do you have any, I don't know, fun or, or um, revealing, revelatory experiences from, from, from archival visits that you can share? I do. So the, the, question I came in with was what was happening in the Belgian underground press during World War II. And what happened during World War II was that Belgium, being a small and flat country, was immediately flattened by the Nazis and, and occupied. And up grew a flourishing underground press. And I wanted to read it all, which has been carefully housed in the Center for World War II Studies in Brussels, and to see where where people were fighting in the various um, French and Flemish, uh, French-speaking Walloon and Flemish, i.e. Dutch-speaking parts uh, of the newspaper uh, output of that time. And what I immediately realized was that the underground press was trying to create a unified voice <laughs> that they had a common enemy, which was the Nazi regime. And so they weren't really going to be having the kinds of debates that you would have under freer circumstances. So I immediately burst into tears when I realized this, because here I was committed to a month or two in Brussels, and there, my project was a, a zero. It was a, it was a non-project. It had died uh, right in front of me. 
and and it was sort of a weird experience that I walked out of the archives and it just so happened that my thesis director, I don't know how this happened, my thesis director was sort of wandering by and and he took me to lunch and and showed me how to redirect my project onto something. Well, you know, they're not disagreeing, but what are they saying? Uh, read them for what they are saying instead of for the thing that you, Carolyn, wanted to look for. So that taught me two things. First of all, that the guidance of the thesis director is very, very important in helping students through a difficult year. And that that reorientation of a project is a critical part of our training as historians, that actually we often, at many times during our career, go into a group of sources thinking we're going to find something, or we go with our uh, our great historical question, and and then the sources won't let us in. They they don't have the answer to those questions, or or they turn out to bore us, or something. And that it's very important to have to cultivate the flexibility to recover from that, and that it's possible. So so that's sort of my nugget from from the Belgian World War II archives. <laughs> so what's the trick? How do you make the pivot? It can be very difficult. Um, not, and not all projects can recover from it. But I think it requires a lot of uh, humility to, to stop listening to what you want and to start listening to what your sources are really saying. And that can be really hard. You know, we've all had the experience of trying to tell something to somebody and they keep not hearing what it is that we are actually saying, that they are only hearing us through the filter of their own minds. Now, you know, to some degree that's inevitable as, as our previous conversation on objectivity was revealing. But I think that it is important to constantly remind ourselves to be humble and also humble to abandon projects. I, I also had the experience in, in graduate school. I feel I feel like a, a kind of war-ravaged veteran at this point, all my horror stories. But in graduate school, I spent six months on my first dissertation project, only to realize that I was completely bored by it. I couldn't stand <laughs> it. <laughs> and I got terrific advice, in fact, from a medievalist on the faculty. And she said, you know, Carolyn, you live with your dissertation for 10 years. It's four or five years in graduate school, then you defend it, then it's what you do as an assistant professor, and then it's your first book. So if nothing else, you have to be really, really interested in your project. So if you're already bored, abandon ship now. And and that's when I went in a different direction. But that also took a lot of courage. You know, it took a lot. Of, that was six months of graduate school. Um, yeah, so lots of humility. And have you found, I mean, I'm just curious, if, if, if you've found those six months um, finding some kind of, of meaning or use in, in some, you know, yeah, circuitous way? I, I think, I kind of think I have to, right, <laughs> <laughs> to not imagine that they were utterly wasted. I think to listen to what boredom sounds like in my own head and to know when it's productive boredom, because there is that when we do our research. 
as you may already be experiencing. There's a lot of documents and things that we read, and we're not quite sure whether they're ever going to amount to anything or whether they're just going to be the background noise that helps us to frame the thing that we actually will say and will quote in our final version. So there's a lot of ways in which we can feel like we're wasting our time. But that's different from sort of this weighted feeling that that you really have to glue your eyeballs to the material to make yourself trudge forward. And knowing what that feels like, I really don't care what the answer is to this question, is that was an important lesson. And now now I know. <laughs> Something I um, have, I don't know, have noticed in, in all the chance, in all the times I've had sitting in, in, in a lecture of yours or, or just talking with you is this energy that you exude. And um, I mean, right, some people, and here I'm talking about myself, might struggle with like insufficient sleep. And there's all these reasons to not have, you know, good energy and meet the moment. But I'm just curious. I mean, this is relevant, obviously, to the work of, of to your work as a teacher and your work as a writer, to the work as a historian. But it's, I, I mean, is it sort of, does, um, does this energy come to you? Or, or, I mean, how do you sustain and cultivate this kind of energy? Mm. Yes, uh, I think I am. I think I am an energetic person naturally. That said, uh, as far as lecturing is concerned, and and I do think that teaching is a profoundly important and noble vocation that we should we should talk up more than we do uh, in 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 universities, but. It takes me a long time to prepare a lecture, especially if it's a new lecture. I mean, 50, 60 hours to write a new lecture. And even when I'm giving one that I've given before, I revisit it. I, you know, I, I, I never do anything for two or three hours before the lecture because I'm getting it all in my head again um, so that it's alive, uh, that it's... It, it's alive in my head and therefore alive to the students and that it's interesting to me again. Um, and I know when I'm ready to give the lecture when I absolutely cannot wait to, to tell the students all about, you know, women's pockets in the 18th <laughs> century, whatever weird thing I'm lecturing about that day. And, you know, at Stanford, we have the wonderful privilege of essentially being able to craft our own courses and to have found over the years, what is it that is Carolyn 101? You know, what is my teaching portfolio look like so that it's really giving students a sense for what makes me wake up in the morning and be so excited to give them a slice of my brain. <laughs> These are genuinely the things that I think about that are sometimes really weird and odd and unexpected. But uh, this sort of sounds a little trite now, and I don't mean it to, but to really get to be me is an enormous privilege because in not all university and teaching settings do you have the freedom to be able to teach what you want to teach and you're not sort of buckled down with a required course load. And and so I think that that's where the energy comes from. And certainly with the, the writing, it's a version of that process. Uh, my goal is 
is to make it look like it just popped off my head, just really naturally. You know, this sentence about dinosaurs that is so crisp and clean, it just came out of my head like that. And of course it didn't. It, you know, it took five years to write that sentence and to rewrite it, rewrite it, pare it down so that it conveys lucidly, cleanly, and um, hopefully delightfully what I want to say. Uh, so I think if you looked at how many times I reopened a Word document, it would be thousands. <laughs> <laughs> but what you're describing is the privilege of being you in, in, in the teaching setting. I mean, it sounds to me like not having to check your, um, and I use this word, um, you know, with, with admiration, but like not having to check your idiosyncrasies at the door and being able to, you know, bring all of one's um, wonderful ridiculousness or whatever to the to the room that's that's exactly it Noah and I you know I don't have the interests that normally bring people to US history I, I can be interested in those things but mostly people don't go to graduate school in American history and say I want to study brontosaurus that that just doesn't <laughs> happen they say I want to study World War II or the Civil War you know the American Revolution something normal like that and that just never was me and I'm I will always be grateful that my advisor in graduate school um, not only allowed but nurtured the idiosyncratic students that came to him and uh, we, I guess we sort of formed our idiosyncratic club um, under his tutelage and protection uh, as, as we went through graduate school. And, and, but also an extremely rigorous advisor. And uh, that, that was a good check sometimes on the flights of idiosyncrasy. <laughs> So, I mean, can can you can you talk more about the, the the arguments you've made about the changes in 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 classics education in America, uh, and and I'm hoping that you can talk about the way in which your research on on the history of classics um, informs the way you think about university education today. I mean, this goes back to what we were saying earlier about this tension between our contingency and our search for I don't know authentic convictions and notions but you have you know all sorts of responsibilities as 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 uh you know as 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 a professor who serves on all sorts of committees thinking about you know what it is that 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 Stanford's here to do um so i i guess i'm 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 assuming that there's a connection between the work and the the the, the scholarship and 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 the university work and i'm wondering if you can talk about that yeah happily and and I, i'll 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 get to the classics uh, research it in a second, but I think I can just begin by saying that I am not at all skeptical about the institution of the university. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful institution, and there should be more of them. Um, among the things that human beings do, teaching and doing research in universities and attending them if you're a student is among the most important things we do as human beings. They're they're just marvelous inventions. And I think the reason, you know, that I do serve on committees and in administrative roles is is to try to give whatever I can to make a project uh, that I believe in succeed uh, in a very kind of non-cynical way. I just I just want to help um, in in whatever way I can. And so what I 
did research on was this uh, the classics, Greek and Latin, during the first 200 years, even more, of American history, before the Civil War, classics was the key part of the American university. Everybody who entered into universities had to study the classics, and they had no problem defending what they were doing because it, this was the road to important roles in public life. And uh, all of the things that the STEM fields can claim for themselves today, utility, etc., could be claimed by classics at, at that time. And so it was, and, and you spent most of your time in universities doing those things. Now, not everybody loved it, right? In fact, a lot of students absolutely hated it. And that was a fun part of the dissertation is figuring out how they cheated on their tests and all of the funny pictures of their professors that they would draw. But it was it was really interesting trying to understand and wrap my head around a moment, a, a 230-year moment of American higher education in which a wholly different form of knowledge constituted its, uh, its basic DNA. And then to watch as it was delegitimized step by step after the Civil War. And I didn't have strong feelings either way. You know, I'm not going to stand up and say we should all be studying Greek and Latin, et cetera, today. I, you know, I, I try to listen to all perspectives on these things. But it was interesting watching how do you go about delegitimizing a branch of, of human learning that had served perfectly well in America for 230 years, but for 2,000 years before that, you know, in the Renaissance and the medieval universities and obviously in the Greco-Roman era it, itself, uh, and, and seeing how quickly that could, that could all vanish and how a whole new set of studies were believed to be vocational training. Um, so, so as somebody who spends time in universities, that was kind of its own education um, to, to see how that happened. And, and But how has that, uh, how have your findings influenced the way you, you talk or, or think about, you know, um, for example, the requirements that are given to first year students? I know you've um, taught and I think are teaching this year the... Uh, the current requirement, right? Stanford has these commitments to 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 having um, you know c common curriculum objectives across the university. Stanford takes different approaches than some other institutions who have different ways of going about it. But I mean, would how do you? I mean, how are you? How do you? How are you thinking about that? Yeah, I. So, so before the Civil War, when classics and this course called Moral Philosophy. Uh, that was taught by the university president, who was always a minister. Uh, those were the two dominant things that happened in universities. They didn't have to have a general ed requirement because basically everybody did the same thing. There was a required curriculum. And the the curse of the modern university only occurred afterward, which was with the, the rise of uh, a whole lot of other different kinds of studies. And people mourned the lack of uh, coherence or felt coherence in what it is that students studied. Everybody could come out with a wholly different b body of knowledge. I do think that that is a legitimate concern. I do think that there is room for general ed. How to do it 
is the big question, and especially how to do it at a, what I call an inter intellectually libertarian university like Stanford. I don't mean it as politically libertarian. I mean that especially at Stanford, you know, in distinction to some other universities, say like Columbia, there is very little tolerance for requirements. Students really don't like them. And if if they did like them, they would go to Columbia. <laughs> they wouldn't come <laughs> here. And, you know, fair point, understood. Uh, but I, I think that I am on the side of, of thinking that it's a good idea to put our first-year students into some series of courses that are taught by trained humanists um, who can show them, work with them on texts that are complicated. Uh, for example, the parable of the cave in uh Plato that I know is taught. So I taught in college last year. This fall, I did a, a, a frosh sem, which is a different way at getting at the same idea. I think those things are very important and that the humanists have a role in, in doing that. We're, we're not, we're reading texts in a certain way. And these are valuable tools to impart to our students. I do think that texts, here's, here's me with my historian hat on, I do think that texts benefit from being placed in a historical context. I know that was very, student, uh, very helpful to my students in college last year when we did Frankenstein, when we did Plato's Republic. They were very curious about the historical context. Now, obviously, you know, I'm a historian, so I would, I would, I would think that. So I, I do think that we can continue to work on this at Stanford. Um, reading and analyzing and understanding at a sophisticated level is one of the most valuable things that we can teach in a university, and we should not shrink from the courage that it takes to do that. What, what do you see as, as your students' responsibilities to, to you and to the institution? I love the way you put that. Uh, the, um, you know, in early American history, we're often talking about rights versus duties. Maybe they talk about them in other realms of history, but I don't teach those, so I, I don't know. Um, I think that students can can and do arrive ready to learn and ready to be taught. And that's certainly, you know, we have this expression, I guess, among teachers, is the student teachable? Are they bringing something, obviously, to the classroom, their own experiences, their own educational backgrounds? But are they then open to, to what we have to offer as well? And uh, those students are an absolute delight to teach because they are so eager. Uh, and I, I also love when students can bring um, a kind of open-ended delight <laughs> in in what what these four years might hold. Uh, openness to n new disciplines, 
new ways of teaching, openness to other students. Um, I've, I've been lucky in the last two years, which is sort of all I can remember at this point of teaching. So <laughs> post-pandemic teaching, you know, we were we were sort of told like, oh, watch out. The students are this. The students are that. I found my students to be an absolute delight um, to, in the wake of the pandemic. They were very eager to to come down on on weird roads with me. <laughs> And I, I think that's really all I ask. And all, obviously, you know, the things I guess that we don't state that that we should state to be very hardworking, to do the reading, <laughs> those, those listen to the writing suggestions that we give, strive for clarity, uh, the, those kinds of formal uh, vocational tasks that we try to impart. But um, it's it's uh, the four years go fast, and I know it sounds a bit. I don't know, kind of finger wagging to say this, but those, this is the only time when there's a group of people around us as students, I guess I'm talking to my, my 18 to 21 year old self. Um, this is the time, right? When you, when you get to do these kinds of explorations and, and it, it will never be so easy. And, and so an openness to doing that. Mm. Let's talk about the um, the seminar seminar on apes and intellectual history uh, that you'll be teaching next quarter with your colleague Professor Jessica Riskin. Um, how did you two decide to put together that class on primates? Yeah, well, we're both historians of science. Uh, Professor Riskin works on 18th and 19th century French science. She's currently writing a biography of Lamarck uh, and trying to rescue him from the oblivion of only being taught as the guy who proposed that giraffes' necks got longer, not by Darwinian evolution, but by, like, trying. Stretching over time. <laughs> Stretching and in their lifetime and then passing on that acquired characteristic to their descendants. Uh, he was much more than that. So by the biography when it comes out. So actually the, the idea came to us. Uh, which was that uh, there's a collector, Jack Dalton, who has the world's largest collection of the paintings of Gabriel von Max, uh, this Prussian painter, sorry, uh, Prague-born painter who uh, you spoke of, who painted from around 1880 to 1920. Uh, he made all these sort of marvelous paintings of monkeys and, and apes. And he also lived with monkeys in his house in Germany. Uh, and and all of, so, so these are going on display beginning in early January. In, in Green Library. And uh, we thought, well, what a wonderful opportunity to, to create a context for that and to um, sort of speak about the moment after Darwin. So Darwin in 1871 follows up on his Origin of Species from 1859 with this new book, The Descent of Man, in which he says, well, not only you know, does natural selection apply to all the animals and plants? It also applies to human beings. And we are descended from the apes. And and this was just really traumatic for people to 
absorb because it meant that God had not fashioned us in his own image uh, or that perhaps his image was of an ape. Uh, both of those things were very traumatic to, to imagine. And, and what that meant is that from that moment forward, our closest animal relatives were not dogs, were not parrots as they might have been before. They were the, the apes, the, especially the, the, quote, great apes, the gorillas and chimpanzees. And so we created uh, this exhibit and then a course around the post-Darwinian moment when suddenly we are the apes and the apes are us, and that that conversation, that dialogue becomes very fruitful for opening up the fundamental question of what makes us human. Um, are the apes like us because they look like us, because they have hands that are tool using? And by the way, what is a tool and what is a hand and what is use? Or are their minds like ours? Do they have speech? All of these questions emerge in the wake of Darwin. And so, you know, first the idea of the exhibit popped into our head. And then why not a course popping into our head because, you know, you only have to imagine that it's not just scientists and the new discipline of primatology that emerges, uh, all kinds of film from King Kong to 2001, A Space Odyssey to you know, Planet of the Apes, uh, etc., come come in the wake of this. And so then came the course that we are doing uh, with our students, uh, a seminar in which the final project is that they're going to create their own little, you know, exhibit case. Uh, and then a scholarly conference, and we hope a, a scholarly book. So it was a very fruitful moment, but all stemmed from this initial generous offer by Jack Dalton to show this series of paintings. And that exhibit will be on display in Green Library from January onward. Right? From January 6th to mid-June. It is there. It is free. It is open to the public. And... We invite everyone to come and look at it. And the, the five cases that, so there's the wall of paintings, and then each of the five cases tries to show one of the domains in which the human-ape divide is, is explored, um, including um, what we learned, also thanks to you, Noah, with your senior thesis, is the extraordinary career of Stanford as a mecca for primatology, this new discipline, and um, the Stanford Outdoor Primate Research Facility. Did I get that right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sop. Sop. Um, that has now been disbanded. Uh, and and the um, career of Jane Goodall uh, here, the chimp, the chimp researcher, which you also look at in your thesis. So there's, I had not known that, that, that in addition to its many other um, areas of research, Stanford has been a leader in primatology. So that's been interesting. And my project, of course, just started from a, a conversation with you prompted by my seeing the APE uh, seminar in, in the course catalog. And in that conversation, you said that there was this cache of documents, the cache of letters um, in special collections. And then I went and looked at them and found out that there was this whole primate facility and that, you know, apes were here and non-human apes were here. And it was just really, I mean, I, and it was so I, that was my first experience of, I guess, the serendipity that's involved in, in I don't know, going to the archive. Y yes, uh, and you've really emb embodied that in your research is a, a kind of initial naive openness. I'm just going to go read these letters, and then those letters help to shape the research and the interviews that you've done, and 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 the 
it's it's really a model of how the archive speaks to us and shapes the project. Uh, and and we, in a sense, are being guided by the voices of the past, you know, in an ideal world. But but this this ape, I mean, I can't remember how you described it once. If you said a, a four-part circus, four-ring... <laughs> Five. Uh, <laughs> Five-ring circus. Um, I, mean, but so, I mean, obviously, I'm working from impressions and intuitions. But from what I can tell, you have engaged in more collaborative projects uh, than many other professors over the course of your career, professors in the humanities. Um, and it's something that I have you know, thought of as being I mean, really neat, really cool. Um, and I'm curious if you could talk about your experiences collaborating with colleagues. Um, I mean, am I right in having the sense that you do more, you know, you know, collaborative projects? Um, and what is separating the, the solitary work of book writing and you know, that sort of thing from the combined efforts that are going into putting together this exhibit or the conference or an, an edited volume. Yeah. Uh, so the, you know what I, I like that there's many ways to be a scholar. And I did discover that I like collaborating with certain others. And uh, I think it's, it's perhaps not uncommon in my own department, but it might be more uncommon in the profession at, at large. Stanford gives us a lot of opportunities to, to coll- collaborate and facilitates it. But I like the process of, of um, working on something fun and interesting with other people. And everybody brings their own contribution. I can do this. I can do that. Uh, for example, the exhibit designer, Kristen Valenti, uh, for the Apes exhibit. She's a genius of visual presentation. So she's put together this beautiful catalog and her design of the catalog, you know, we we provided the verbiage, the descriptions of the paintings and such. Uh, and her design, her thinking about how an idea can be expressed in three dimensions. Uh, was glorious to watch as it unfolded. And I think I just really enjoy that. Having spent my six years of graduate school in a sort of solitary, atomized (laughs) seclusion um, in my cell in the library, I I love that in this part of my career I can be more collaborative. And it it turned out really well with my colleague Karen Wiggin a few years ago with the volume on time and maps that emerged from a conference at the Rumsey Map Center. Um, So, yeah, I, I like doing this and I hope to continue to do more. We haven't touched on your identity as an intellectual historian. Um, can you talk about what intellectual history is and what separates it from other subfields of history? You know, I didn't start out as an intellectual historian. I thought I was going to study witchcraft. And then for a variety of reasons, I found my way into the history of ideas. So I think all you know, all domains of history are connected at, at a certain level. All of us have to be aware of what other people are doing. To me, what makes an intellectual historian is a interest in the ideas of other people. I'm really interested in what you know, what makes somebody in the past tick, and how I can recover what makes them tick. For most people, we can't. But second, I think you have to be convinced that ideas matter. That ideas can shape the world. And not everyone believes that. Uh, some other historians might 
you know, very legitimately believe that social formations or um, systems, et cetera, are the primary determinants of our existence. And uh, that's fine. They can think that. I, th I really think that ideas animate people in the world. And I am very interested in the process of recovering the whole mental apparatus of people, educated people who lived in the past. Um, I just find that to be very, very satisfying. But it's hard because most people don't leave us enough material to do that. And even when somebody has written down all of their sophisticated, educated academic thoughts about whatever they think about a thing, we're still missing other huge dimensions of them as full human beings. For example, one of the hardest things to capture is somebody's personality, um, or what in the 19th century they would have called character. And yet, you know, five seconds with them, if we could spend five seconds with them, you know, in front of them, right, if we could engage in time travel, that would be radiating out from them, just from the way they were sitting or looking at us or their uh, various gestures. And yet all of that has vanished, uh, especially before the era of, you know, photography, when someone's very ephemeral pose could be captured in some way. But I do what I can. <laughs> and I just, I think how other people think is really interesting. I have found myself very moved when I've tried to think about the way in which, you know, all these people who were here have vanished as you just put it. Um, I mean, and for most historians, it seems right. most of their time is spent thinking about people who have died, uh, who, yeah, who aren't around anymore. I mean, I guess some people can write biographies of people who are still alive and interview people who knew them or that, you know, the person, the subject themselves. But a lot of people are spending time thinking about, you know, <laughs> groups of people who are long since gone. I mean, what, what is that like for you? Uh, the experience of that. Yeah, you know, most of the time, I'm not thinking that they have died. I'm, I'm trying to recreate them. But sometimes it does hit me that at some point they died. And this happened with this research paper I did in graduate school in the papers of uh, Charles Horton Cooley, who was a sociologist at the University of Michigan. And he kept this sort of insanely detailed journal throughout the course of his life. And I read the whole thing. You know, being a graduate student, I read every single year of the journal all the way through. And I noticed that as he got older, his handwriting got worse. And then one day it ended. And I've never forgotten that moment because it was a kind of slap in the face. Oh, Charles Horton Cooley died one day. And I th think it stayed with me because it was a reminder that they, like I, will, you know, and like the people I love in the world, they will die. And um, I think when I remember that, it, it, it is such a very humanizing process. And it, it's a reminder of one of the things my advisor in graduate school said to me. He said, never mock your historical figures. Never make fun of them. Um, 
because even though something they might have done might seem absurd or foolish, that's not your place. Um, this is a serious uh, responsibility that you have taken upon yourself. And um, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> so I guess I must have been doing that at some point in my paper, and I don't do it anymore. <laughs> In in 2018, you wrote a, a really wonderful review of Steven Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now, for the Washington Post. Uh, and in that book, you histor historicized that idea of progress that Pinker, you know, mm. I, I want to say, takes for granted in the book. Uh, and you pointed out that there are other ways to interpret history. And the example you gave at the end of the review is adaptation, an approach exemplified by someone like Darwin, who sought to formalize, as you put it, life getting by, uh, not life always and only getting better. Is that ultimately your own view, that history is a record not of progress but of adaptation? I might not even go that far. Uh, I, well, because I've studied the Enlightenment when the idea of progress, i.e. kind of a natural law of improvement, usually along technological lines, uh, I, because I've studied that, I, I have to tell all my students, like, it's not true, right? There isn't a thing. This is a historical construction, just just like, you know, so many other things. It's a, it's a frame of interpretation that, w that we put on the past that is no truer than the biblical declension narrative or the Roman cyclical view of history. It's, it's a way of making some narrative sense of the chaos that, that the past leaves to us. And I really, I think we just create these narratives <laughs> um, to, to kind of make sense of our lives right now, but that they don't really have any higher meaning than that. We all bring ourselves to our historical uh, inquiries, which is why we're constantly revising what other people wrote about the past. I'm making it sound so nihilistic, and that's not, you know, I do it as a labor of love. I, I love doing this. Uh, but I, I, I just can't understand someone like Steven Pinker who actually thinks that progress is for real. <laughs> you know, I mean, one can say, uh, you know, medical devices in a certain realm have improved at doing a certain specific thing. I would never deny that. But as a whole, you know, arc that is bending in a certain direction on all fronts at all times in all places, I think that's so strange and, and, and unlikely. So I I have a hard time with that, with even adaptation. And Darwin himself struggled with the idea of adaptation and the lack of narrative uh, of teleology. So I don't really know, Noah. I, I don't I don't I don't know if I can even answer that. I, I have a hard time with any narrative on the historical past. Mm. But if if you don't have the um uh, the progress goggles on when you're looking at the future, I mean what is it you feel and think? Um, when feeling and thinking about the future? I think we have no idea what's coming down the pipeline. You know, it's enlight the Enlightenment that invents the idea that we can predict the future along a secular axis and that certain 
scientific disciplines of predicting the future, et cetera, can help us to dominate and shape the future. I think a little bit of that happens. But I end the Deep Time book with this wonderful image um, of a, there's this geological time spiral of, you know, the this river of time moving inexorably forward from 4.2 billion years ago through the dinosaurs and then the mastodons and then all the way to the present. And as the wave of the present is is crashing into the future. There's this little surfer who is riding the wave. I guess this is my childhood spent in Del Mar, California, surfing capital <laughs> coming coming to, to bear here. But he's surfing on the edge of the wave into the unknown future. I don't think that we know what's coming. And there's so many times that I've looked at a historical moment and and they say things like, you know, here's what's coming. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And it never happens that way. Something totally different and unexpected happens. So I personally, for me, all bets are off. Mm -hmm. I like to end the show asking people about their... um mentors, older loved ones who, who, who shape them into who they are. You've talked about your doctoral advisor, James Turner. Mm-hmm. Who, are, who are some of the other people who, who, who've helped you on your journey of becoming who you are and are still becoming? Um, yeah. Uh, so, so many different people. I think, uh, I'm guessing many people will answer in this way, but my, my parents had a uh, big influence on me in being simultaneously rigorous inquirers. They were both scientists, but also kind of hilariously and childishly naive about things. Um, I remember when the first Mars rover landed. I don't know if it was a rover. The first craft to land on Mars and send images back to Earth. Yeah, maybe it was stationary. I can't remember. Um, But I remember my father saying, you know, I'm actually really disappointed that there aren't these big creatures (laughs) (laughs) running around in front of the camera. And to my (laughs) child self, I thought, oh, it's so great that grown-ups think like this too. Because I wanted there to be big, weird creatures with tentacles and googly eyes to be looking out on Mars that way. And I I think I've tried to lead my own adult life in this way, sort of in touch with my internal three-year-old of wondrousness and an effort never to be jaded, to be kind of delighted in a hilarious way about everything, or as much as I can. I mean, it's, it's so beautiful to hear. Um, right, I'm, I'm uh, a resident assistant in, in, a, in, in a dorm with first-year students, and my one of my supervisors, the resident fellow, she has a, a little boy who's like, you know, somewhere between two and three years old or... So, but he, um, on his way into school or daycare, whatever it's called, he'll he'll hug these trees and roots outside the the daycare, and sometimes she'll take photos of it and send it um, 
to me or to the to the the, the staff of of resident assistants and it's just so beautiful and i mean i i can get really emotional thinking about it and it makes me think of that those lines from wordsworth about trailing clouds of glory from god who is our home i'm curious what the experience of being a parent has has meant for this um for own inner child yeah it well as your lovely anecdote about the tree and root hugging three-year-old suggests children are these little chaotic weirdos in this incredibly delightful way and i remember feeling like I had found my people, you know, when they were three uh, or six or whatever. And still today, they're in their 20s and they still delight me with their the odd places that their minds can go, even though now we obviously can relate on a on a grown-up level. Just to, to go and find weird things together on, on quests for the absurd. My daughter earlier this year accompanied me to New Mexico in search of what we hoped were the 10,000-year-old sloth foot extinct great sloth footprints <laughs> that we heard were in White Sands, New Mexico. And it turns out that they are there, but we're not allowed to see them. But there were still the White Sands that I recommend everybody go to because they're amazing. Uh, you can walk all over them. And, and we were like three-year-olds just delighted. Look, there's these big shifting pure white dunes on this ancient lake bed, and you can walk all over them and bury, get buried up to your neck in, in sand. So, uh, yeah, definitely, um, I was a big believer in bringing children to open-ended places, like a beach. A beach is an open-ended place. There's basically nothing that they can do, quote, wrong. And so much for them to sort of wander around and figure out. They can scare the seagulls. They can build a sandcastle. They can play with their toes in the mud next to the water and... This this is all sort of good in in my view. I like I like when my when my scholarship feels like the beach in that childish mm. way that that there's nothing I can do wrong, that it's this open ended sandbox. And I'm feeling that right now with this new project that I'm working on on, uh, you know, apes, and yeah. I mean, how how wonderful the the image of of the beach. Um, I've used. There's been two things that have been used as the cover art for the podcast. Um, one of them was put together by the Daily, and it has my face on it for for better or for worse, for worse. But um, the other one is is the painting "The Sun" by by Edvard Munch, which is um, the mural in the University Aula, the University of Oslo, where they used to give out the Nobel um, Peace Prize. And I just love this image because it's, it reminds me of that painting. I can't, is it the School of Athens painting where you have Aristotle pointing out and Plato pointing up? And it, I feel like Munch has like collapsed this into having the sun sitting at the horizon, you know, broadcasting light and colors in every direction. And it's just such a beautiful painting. But that, that's just the mural at the front of the room. Um, on the sides of the room, there are other murals. Um, and these are, of people at, at the beach and and one of them is called the scientists or the investigators and it's a bunch of children you know tinkering around with stones and sand and you know doing what children do at the beach um so anyway I, I, 
it's just it's just an association relevant to to your description of the beach. Yeah, uh, it's funny. We both have different images for the same idea in our minds. There's one of my favorite New Yorker covers. Uh, I think it's called a higher voice or higher power something. I can't quite remember the title, but it shows a bunch of grown-ups at the beach in the summertime, and they're all talking on their cell phones. And then there's a, a little girl, and she does look about three. She has these adorable little pigtails, and she's listening to a shell mm. um, in front of, uh, and and that to me, you know, I want to be the little girl listening to the shell, uh, which which I did, you know, as a child, because that's you know that's what you can do. One of the many things you can do at the beach, um, and to I don't know, f- figure out what what I'm hearing in the shell. Uh, so yeah, I, I I think it was very formative for me to have grown up in a house very near the beach, uh, and and at night to hear the sound of the waves kind of coming and going and and just to I don't know I've been s- sort of set free in the feral 70s way that that one was raised with their little supervision and just sort of um spending the day in the water and when you go to bed at night if you've ever spent the day in the ocean your uh the fluid in your ear maintains the rocking motion of the ocean and that's a lovely feeling that you're still in the rocking motion of the ocean so I think about that a lot and it actually was one of the delights of the deep time book that so many of the moments of deep time that I was writing about the you know the moment of trilobites and the moment of you know whatever occurred either in the ocean or on the beach and artists were trying to render these maritime and uh Beach, beachy settings, and I really liked looking at those paintings. And one of the uh, goals of the Deep Time book, which is coming out next fall, was to present some images that had never been seen before of Americans' first encounters with Deep Time. So, uh, you know, I fought hard to get over 100 images in the book, and they try to paint in a sense, how Americans thought about deep time. And a lot of that was thinking about the the oceans that are our mother uh, in, in some way. Is it taboo to ask you about your next book projects, um, what you're thinking about doing next? Oh, not not at all. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always on the beach <laughs> collecting more rocks. So I think, you know, the first is going to, I hope, be an edited collection of all the wonderful papers that we're going to get at this conference on primates in uh, early February. And it, to our great delight, it includes not just historians uh, who study the history of primates around the world, but also scientists, primatologists from Stanford, um, Sue McConnell of Stanford, who takes beautiful photographs of of primates, will be there. I'm very excited about that. So we want to create an edited collection of that. I think the next book I want to write is about uh, visions of the asteroid um, impact. The, The asteroid impact theory 
was first proposed in 1980 by Walter and Luis Alvarez at Berkeley and a number of other people. And it has a lot to do with fears of nuclear war and Armageddon coming from the skies. And it um, continues to haunt us today and is a, a great source of imagination for people that, you know, and it displaced other theories of gradual extinction, but there's something about neo-catastrophism that I want to say. And so I have begun by collecting images of the asteroid impact theory, um, which are just so fun, you know, <laughs> she says, <laughs> to, to watch the utter annihilation of life on Earth. So I've begun to do that, but it's it's more than, you know, the T-Rex looking up, uh, in, you know, terrified of the asteroid coming. It's more thinking about um, neo-catastrophism and neo-apocalypticism that is woven into climate change narratives. So who knows? I might become a modern historian. I don't know. <laughs> well, Professor Winter, thank you so much for coming on to the program. Thank you, Noah. That was my interview with Professor Carolyn Winterer. Professor Winterer's new book, How the New World Became Old, is coming out in fall 2024. You've been listening to Office Hours Air, broadcast on KZSU Stanford Radio 90.1 FM and available online as a podcast. Thank you for listening.